Hello there, and welcome to Consortio Day, a podcast about partnering with God to do sacred work. My name is John Chandler, and I'm a spiritual director. And after 25 years of leadership in churches and in nonprofits, my spiritual direction practice is focused on walking alongside others who do sacred work, sometimes with individuals, sometimes with teams, in order to help them cultivate spiritual practices, soul care, and relational support. And so this podcast is a companion to my practice, just as a gift and a service to those who do that kind of work. Um, I'm also in the works with some other resources. I'm really excited about sharing, and I'd love to share them with you as well. So I'd encourage you, if you're interested, to follow the link at the bottom of the description for today's podcast to my website and sign up for my email list. I'll be uh, sending out some emails in the upcoming months about some of those resources I have in the works. And I would also welcome just reviews on iTunes to help spread the word about this podcast and because uh, I think it could be beneficial to others. Or if you want to share it with others on social media, that would be fantastic. My guest today is Lisa Yaboa. Lisa is the lead pastor of the Southeast Raleigh Table, and she actually, I had a couple different friends along the way suggest that she's somebody I should interview, and after talking with her today, I can see why. She is a glutton for joy and a lover of people. That is straight out of her own um, bio that she wrote, and it definitely, definitely comes through as I talk to her, and I think you'll pick up on it as well. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lisa Yaboa. All right. Well, I am here with Lisa Yaboa. I said it right, right? Yeah, you said it right. Uh, only because I just asked you like you That's know, right. <laughs> 30 seconds ago how to pronounce it. But uh, Lisa is the pastor at the table of Southeast Raleigh. Did I say that right? Uh, it's the Southeast Raleigh table. The Southeast Raleigh table. Yes. Okay. And uh, tell us a little bit about your church. Tell us about your role there. Yeah. So um, my uh, congregation, it's a part of a multi-site, um, kind of birthed out of another um, United Methodist Church. Um, we are, I like to say, a very robust community that is parish-focused and parish-driven. We we um, we make decisions based off of our neighborhood. And um, the Southeast Raleigh Table is right now located uh, within um, some historically Black and Brown communities in, in Raleigh in particular. So the the feel, uh, the DNA, the essence, the ways in which we try to show up. I wanted to honor um, our neighbors, even though uh, right now uh, our church community is probably more diverse uh, racially, socioeconomically than the average United Methodist Church. Um, it is still predominantly white. And yet what's interesting about us is that we don't center whiteness, which is, and I mean, I'm a, as a black female pastor, there's there's even a politic that is being sure. made for folks who um, who come alongside, but it's a great it's a great it's a great congregation. Yeah, and I, I mean I, I'm familiar with the the multi site church that you're part yes. of simply simply through our mutual friend Justin Morgan, and, and I know you know of Church on Morgan, and I've talked with him several times. Um, so I, I'm, I really appreciate the dynamic that seems to exist there. And again, this is from the outside, but it sure. seems like it, like you describe it as a multi-site, but it seems like there's a lot of independence. And it seems yes. like the churches exist because of a lot of generosity from the part of the, the starting or ascending church, however I might say it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm a little careful about that, partly because of I don't ever want to create or like you it could come across as colonial language just right. in regard to like the the sure. dynamic of our kind of uh, uh, original site the original site 
um, I, you know, we, we definitely went into this venture a little differently than the way some churches that are multi-site, which are almost like they, they replicate themselves. We were more like micro parishes saying, yeah, we're going to send you out. There are people from this, uh, you know, original site who um, believe in the the mission vision that you have for the particular parish that you want to um, you want to be rooted in. And so our our sites are very contextual. So I wanted to very much uh, find myself located between the two um, HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities in Raleigh, and mm-hmm. the communities, the matriarchs and patriarchs of the communities that were built up around it. That's going to have a very different flavor than the original campus right. that we yeah. are that I, that I came out of. And so there was definitely freedom to be contextual, which I, sometimes I say this about United Methodists. We, we have abdicated responsibility to our own, to our own tools. Lots of other denominations take the very best of our Wesleyan spirit and they like riff off of it. And sometimes we forget that we were like the, the OGs of contextualization. Um, and yet we all wanted to become kind of cookie cutter and um, maybe allowed our, uh, allowed our order to become primary versus our, um, I like to say noodling, being able to choreograph and to innovate and um, to be jazz, to be like jazz. And uh, I think our multi-sites, the, this multi-site is definitely very much contextual. Um, you know, it, we're, we are looking to become a quote unquote station church, meaning um, our own uh, kind of no longer a part of a multi-site, but, uh, but I'm grateful for the years that we have had this yeah. particular relationship. Sure. And, and how, like, how did you end up, did you grow up at United Methodist or how did you end up? Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm a cradle United Methodist. My, my dad, my, my dad was uh, uh, born in the Presbyterian church of Ghana. My mother was an Anglican in Ghana, you know, they were colonized mm-hmm. by the British. So, sure. and they both, they both, both grew up under colonial rule. Um, and so <laughs> that's a whole, that's also a whole story for a whole nother day. Sure, sure. But um, when my father came to the U S he kind of got scooped up by the United Methodists, went to Vanderbilt for divinity school, which is a, a Methodist related uh, institution. And um, yeah, so I've, I've, I've grown up United Methodist all my life. Yeah. So w- were your parents in ministry as well? My father's a United Methodist pastor. Wow. Okay. He'll be retiring this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, so that being, describe a little bit then what your, just for, you know, for context again, what your specific role is within the church. Like I know yeah. that, I know that you're the lead pastor, but that can mean a lot of things. Yeah. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah. And I don't know if like, if you mean this in regards to like, what's my sacred work? Yeah. But, what are your um, responsibilities look yeah, like? Even? Yeah. You know, I, I think of myself, I mean, I, as a lead pastor, I, I do kind of the typical you know, primary preaching voice, um, mm-hmm. primary vision caster of my community. But I, I like to really think that um, I'm like a, uh, and, and granted, I realize as we live through a pandemic, I want to use this term carefully, in many ways, like a contagion. Um, like, how is it that my very life as pastor and person becomes viral in a community? Um, I oftentimes say that I'm like a joy bringer. Well, that is reflected in the ways in which we do life together. Um, I can live with nuance like it's my full-time job. How is that reflected in the community that, um, that, uh, that, we are, that we're living in? Um, I think the thing I'm very curious about in this stage of ministry that is very much reflected in my uh, church community is this idea of us taking seriously our racialized identities 
and how growing up in the United States of America really does place particular scripts on people that sometimes can be to a disadvantage around their spiritual formation because so many folks are baptized into um, very unhealthy patterns because of the ways in which uh, the empire works. And for me, it's like, how do I help people? I think I'm the chief, chief divestment officer. Like I want people to divest from empire and invest in, in kingdom. So almost everything that I'm thinking through tends to have that, um, have that flavor, have that flavor for, um, for how I live up my life in the, in the community. I mean, you know, I sit on the sure. committees, yada, yada, yada. Sure, sure. But yeah, it's, it's like um, crafting, a, crafting or cultivating a culture. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, it almost, it, it almost sounds like that you intentionally, um, you intentionally are aware that because the church almost needs to live at the fringe of empire or even outside the boundaries of empire and call back into it, that you're very attuned to that place as a pastor. Yes. Well, you know, um, I, 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 I used to say, especially in interviews, that growing up, I, I live on the intersection of multiple realities, yes, just like my, yes. my, my, my very being. So yeah. I'm always keeping my eyes open for those who live just on the edge of particular yeah. um, particular uh, realities. And um, I think it's been to my credit that there have been times when I have felt culturally homeless. That's not true. I mean, in, in essence, I was not culturally homeless. What I was feel, feeling was always this like in-between. This is uh, something one of my friends, Reverend Gail Song Bantam says, this in-betweenness that I live with. And I think it's a great, it, it has built up my muscles in ministry to live in in-between space, to understand that people very rarely um, only come like with one identity. They, they, they're different identities that people are always kind of like brokering and, um, and navigating. And I think that brings about a particular complexity with spiritual formation. I think at the end of the day, my, my role is about the spiritual formation of people. Yeah. Um, and I don't want them to be janky boots in this world. Like I don't want people to, you know, we use this term in my, in my community, like don't be trash. I don't want people to be trash. I want people to be brilliant yeah. and their best selves. And, um, to come home to themselves, um, I mean, to be covered in the dust of their rabbi, but not to do that in like ethereal woo woo ways. But like, like when you show up in the grocery store that you really are showing up, uh, showing up well. And I do think that my, uh, my own social location in the world helps me with that. I would, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Because the very nature, I think of spiritual formation in the way that you describe it, I think is really beautiful because it is, it's really moving people from the empire they're immersed in to an alternate way of, uh, to a more true way, I would like yes. to think of seeing reality and inviting yes. them into that. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. also to uh, like th that church becomes the place of belonging when, because it's not an easy, you know, we sometimes say, Oh, you got to dismantle systems. You need to divest from, you know, um, in my community, we oftentimes say spit up, uh, what you have been drinking from the cup of white supremacy. And we say that all, you know, quite often, but the, the, but the reality is like people want a place of belonging. And whenever you start to like interrogate the things that have formed you, you, you start to fear, will I have a people? <laughs> like, will I have yeah. a place? And, and I think the church uh, or what, what I'm trying to do uh, mm -hmm. in church is create that, that in-between space for people to, um, to know they have a place of belonging when they live in the in-between. Yeah. Yeah. So then, and this seems like 
This seems like a no-duck question, but I find it a really helpful question for me to think about. And I don't know how I would have answered this, you know, in the different church roles that I've played. What, but what role does partnering with God play in your work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I used to, um, my mom used to always remind me, like, uh, ministry looks like uh, the things that you cannot do except by the power of God. Um, and, you know, growing up in predominantly black church space, but by God is like kind of like the, the comma after everything, but by God's mm. grace, you know, thanks be to God. If, you know, if, if it weren't for God, like we, we tend to almost always comma. And then like, uh, it's like, you know, Jesus has been the co-pilot before there were planes, um, this idea uh, uh, of that. And I do think that like, um, I, I think of partnering with God is that I don't know that there's anything that I do but by um, God's uh, God's power and grace, um, but you know, in in very recent years, I I keep going back to the creation story when uh, we are told that when God looks at all that God has that God has created, um, God declares um, God's creation very good, and that part of partnering with God looks like how is it that I live out my life that I'm always bringing everything back to the very good. Um, to me, that's the thing. If, if the original vision was that everything was very good, and I realize I live in a world where elders can be in Buffalo and shot, and children can be in yes, uh, yeah. Uvalde and cannot even be aren't their bodies are uh, these brown bodies are not safe. Like, um, I think partnering with God is like, okay, that's not good. So then, mm-hmm. how do I bring the, you know things back to the very good? And I and I think partnering with God also looks like me asking that for myself, like personally, like I want the world to be just, but that means uh, how do I let God help me to be just? I want the world to be gracious and graceful. Well, then I need to also allow God to be, um, to, to, to imbue me or endow me with grace or with mercy. And so uh, um, in my, in my person, and then also to, in my work. So the in and the through, uh, what does it look like for me to bring everything back to the yeah. good? Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you don't, um, if you can't continue to see that God is good and God is doing hmm. good things, how can you speak it you yes. know, on Sunday or in the grocery store on Monday, right. Tuesday, Wednesday? That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, how, how do you sustain that then? Cause we, I mean, right now, like, and, and you as, uh, a black woman pastor would understand this far better than me. We're coming out of really hard conversations and really hard mm-hmm. seasons that I am aware of for the past few years. You're aware of, I imagine Every, for your whole all, life, all 45 right? years. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what's, how do you sustain, mm. how do you sustain clinging to the goodness of God through all that? Mm. What are your, what are your own rhythms look like for that? Yeah. You know, um, I, I think it's in, important for me to say, that the pandemic has changed me. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, almost everything that I, that I share, it's like, um, pre March 8th, 2020, like, you know, uh, post March 8th, 2020, uh, is a kind of this new way of, of being, you know, um, during sheltering place in particular, I realized how important rituals were Yeah, because rituals make make meaning of time, but they also, I needed to make meaning of myself. I mean, I was literally in a house by myself other than with a yellow lab who does not talk, (laughs) um, pontificating with my, with my, you know, my own, with my own thoughts. And so these rituals, like I had a a way of waking up in the morning, um, waking up more slowly than I used to, because I'm, I'm not going to hit the ground running to, 
you know, um, make the morning commute from upstairs to downstairs. It was like, no need to be hurried. Like I really leaned into this fact that this, you know, uh, God does not hurry us. Um, I'd make a cup of coffee. I would normally get onto, and this is still true. I'd get on Marco Polo, which is like a a video. And because I want to talk to people who like, um, that I love and they love me. And, um, I'm not going to be able to meet with people in the coffee shop, but I can at least just be talking out loud. I'm making my coffee on Marco Polo. Um, I have leaned into a lot of quiet and, um, and even solitude, even though I was in sheltering place, like what does it look like to truly spend three or four hours just not talking and not having a lot of, um, a lot of noise. Um, but I would say that the, the, the inner kind of like the personal rhythm or, or um, discipline that I have most, that I've most leaned into has been, I ask myself more frequently, what do I need right now? And I, and I am grateful to the pandemic and I will not backpedal. I'm grateful to the pandemic right. because every single month, that would be the question I would ask myself, what do I need right now? Uh, because what I needed when we were, you know, f- you know, level one or phase one is very different than what I, and I'm just more willing to be human um, and to give myself what, what I, what I, you know, what I need to eat good food, to work out. Um, urgency is a scam. I like, in fact, urgency is a scam around a ding dong. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't race and pace and people who want me to race and pace. I'm just like, y'all keep doing that if you want to, but that's not, um, that's not my, that's not my thing. Um, I rest a lot more. Um, one of my one-liners is that I will not be my own Pharaoh. I will not enslave myself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm good to myself. I, it's, it's, it's a, a truly like being, it's one thing to say, Oh, let's be kind and gracious to ourselves. It's another thing to actually be kind and gracious to ourselves. And I think yeah. all of my rhythms, when they, even when they shift and they change, they all kind of come back to, what do I need right now? And am I being kind and gracious to myself? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I know that um, I, I did not have the experience that you had because I have um, a family of five, right? Wow. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly understand that how rhythms have been challenged and changed. I, I'm struck by something I think you alluded to, but you didn't necessarily sure. say. So if, if I'm, if I'm characterizing this incorrectly, feel sure. free to say Don't so. you worry. I, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an Enneagram nine. Uh, um, I, I always know how to diplomatically say, well, um, <laughs> not, not quite. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yeah. I, I mean, it sounds like what I heard you saying, and I feel like I've heard others allude to this too, that even though you were living alone mm-hmm. during shelter in place, solitude was still a choice you had to make. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, um, I never felt lonely. Um, but I did feel like there was a cacophony of voices. Like everyone wanted to become an expert on Instagram about how to journey through a pandemic. Um, we were listening to more podcasts than we've ever listened to in all of our lives and the world was noisy. I mean, if you think about 2020 was Jesus, I mean, like it was, it was a pressure cooker. Now, granted all of my life, I've understood like all these inequities. It's not, nothing was new to me, but it was like, it was amplified in a way that we couldn't escape it. I could no longer be an escape artist to the noise because we were at home, yeah. at homing. But yes, solitude. Like I would sometimes um, literally go out of town 
and stay like in a tiny home yeah. or go to getaway, which is like a, there are these little cabins in the woods, um, which you would say, well, you could do that at home. It's like, yeah, but something about just being mm. geographically located where I'm trying to come alongside my neighbors and my church community um, to be at just a geographically displaced helped me to find a different level of um, a different level of quiet. Or sometimes I would move about my house and say, um, you know, Lisa, I think we need to take a nap right now. Like I talk to myself a lot. I think we need to take a nap right now. Like we need a, a different kind of rest than just sitting on the couch or watching Netflix. Like we need to take a nap or we need to take a walk. Um, I did a lot of walking and talking to myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, but you know, they, they oftentimes say like solitude, you, you can, you can create uh, little solitudes in your day. Um, you know, cause I no longer had a commute. I no longer was in the car, you know? So it's like, how do I, how do I create, create quiet, quiet in, um, in a space where I'm also trying to, it's my, where I work out. It's, I become a short order cook. Um, it's where uh, (laughs) I have a thriving home church, a production studio. Like we were over-functioning in our homes as well. And so how do you create quiet, quiet within spaces and places where, um, uh, uh, our agency was limited, but our also too, our agency was like expanded. Right. So what did, what did that like, particularly, what did that solitude look like for you? I mean, you talk about talking to yourself, you talk about uh-huh. going for walks, but like, what are some of the practices that has specifically been helpful for you? Yeah. You know, uh, one is, um, I, um, you know, I, I talk about my, the church, the church community that I grew up in, you know, it was nothing to say we're going to lay prostrate before God. Um, you know, people really did like, we moaned at the altar. Uh, we had a lot of like embodied practices. And I, I will sometimes for five minutes just lay in the bed quietly um, or put my feet on the ground while I'm sitting in the bed, but I'm not trying to like hop up and, you know, throw on slippers and, and do the like. And something about like just listening to the voice of God. Um, I, you know, sometimes my prayer would be, I don't know what I am doing, God, but you do. Mm, yeah, but you do, um, or or God, I give to you this day, um, with whatever it's going to bring. I give to you this day, and so I something about um, turning down the volume of the voices within looks like like a little like a little solitude. Um, yeah, just as just as important as turning turning down the the volume of the voices beyond us. Um, yeah. I think it's also. What does it look like for me to get quiet within myself, to turn down the inner critic, to turn down yeah, yeah. my overthinking officer, to turn down my, I got to like somehow have the most brilliant thing, uh, ministry during a pandemic. Like, how do I turn down those voices that I can just say, okay, God, today, all I have is today. Um, because we were practicing the ministry of presence like never before, but it was like the ministry of presence to self. I think especially for pastors, like yes, we, we, yeah. we weren't in hospitals anymore and we weren't um, going to committee meetings, like it, like in actual like spaces. And so we also were doing the ministry of like, we were being so present to the, like to the moment. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, th- and I think that's where that difference between alone and solitude comes in is, you know, you can say you have to get alone to quiet all of the things sure. going on around you, but you have to choose solitude. I think, you know, to, to quiet the inner voice. I yes. really like how you talked about how that inner voice is there too. And yes. To choose to quiet that. Yeah. One of the things I'm struck by that you said earlier, and you know, 
I assume a lot of this has shifted now is I assume your church is gathering again yes. and, and all of that. So one of the things I really appreciate, and maybe I misinterpreted this, but I don't <laughs> think so, is you seem to be very engaged relationally yes. with the people in your church. Like you yes. are, you're a pastor among the people Yes, where, you know, am I... My limited impression is that often, especially in black churches, you know, the pastor is very respected, you know, includes the title and how they're addressed and set apart. And so I wonder what it looks like for you to find a healthy balance between being the pastor who's kind of out front and leading in the way that you describe, and at the same time, being part of your community like yeah. what, what what's what's where where are you able to draw boundaries between i'm the pastor of this community and i'm a person in this community yes. i guess that's what i'm asking yeah that's really great well you know i um I, i'm a lululemon ambassador for one of the for the one of the lululemon stores here in raleigh and on my picture in the store it says pastor and life enthusiast and i oftentimes say that i'm like a parish priest like wherever i go I am, I am Lisa the person, but I also come with like these pastoral sensibilities. And so, um, for anyone that I meet, my relational capital with them is that I want them to live life, not perform life. I think anyone who meets me, bartender, they're just going to be like, oh, this is when Lisa comes, she comes like the party starter. She's a pastor too, you know, like, um, and I, I'm an extrovert. Uh, I've got, a little more energy than most of my contemporaries who are my, who are my age. And, and I'm friendly, like, you know, just a overall friendly person. And what I have recognized though, is um, because of that, people oftentimes assume I have um, lots of energy for them. And this is where um, my sabbatical in 2019 was really helpful because it made me realize that while I have some friends who are within my congregation, um, I, I cannot be friends with everyone in my congregation. And I think I'd yeah. always, I'd always, yeah. I'd always known that. Um, but I can be friendly to everyone in my congregation. That there's a way of like honoring people's humanity by like meeting them and kind of like trying to believe in their very best as opposed to being adversarial, um, with that. But what I, what I, here's what I would say in regards to like, um, my boundary, my boundaries. And I've messed up. Like I, I, I I've, sure. I'm like realizing this is that um, I have people outside of my church community that I lean on deeply. I will um, always remember like my fiduciary relationship to the people who are in the who are in the pews in regard to like um, how much access do they have to my life and. Um, though I might have a particular access to, to their lives. And so who are the people in my, who are the people in my life that I can still practice radical vulnerability and honesty? Yes. So I'm not living a cloaked life. I, I cause I never want to be a persona. You know, I never want to be a persona. And that's my therapist. That's I'm having people who um, operate like spiritual directors. These are my friends who I can kiki it up and like do particular things with. And while I do not um, diminish my personhood as pastor, I I recognize like I cannot ask my parishioners to hold uh, everything in, um, you know, everything in my, in my life. And sometimes I've had to tell people, you know, I sense you want a friend and I can Mm -hmm. show up better for you as a pastor, but I hope that you will find friends here. Um, Yeah. yeah. So how do you, and I really appreciate that kind of the way you put some of that. I'm, I'm curious. And I really appreciate actually your, 
awareness and intention that it is good for you to have some level of vulnerability with some people in your congregation, yes, but not, not all of them. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So, so what is, how do you, how do you feel like you choose, <laughs> is it a gut instinct? Uh-huh. Like how, how do you choose? This is a person that I can be on a peer level, on a vulnerable level. With, uh-huh. And this is not. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Two things I've just thought about. So one is um, one of my, one of my examination questions early on is does this person need a friend or want a friend? And if the person needs a friend, they actually need a pastor. <laughs> you know, people who are in a place where they, I want new friends, but I don't have to have new friends. I'm like, oh, that's great. Because then then it's like um, there's very little room for heartbreak um, in regard to like um, how much community might mean for them. Like if I if my yes to a person is going to feel like life or death, that's let me be your pastor. Um, yeah. I think the other thing is just being honest with myself around who are the people who can hold space for themselves, um, who have healthy rhythms in their lives, who, yeah. um, who are very boundaried also in their lives. Those are folks who typically, um, and we have things in common. Like <laughs> sometimes people who are very shy want to be, they want to be close to me because they want, they, they, they kind of want access to the thing. And I'm like, y'all do know I love like 90s R&B I'm, I'm, you, you're going to hear me before you see me. I love to dance. I'm like, you know, like I, I'm all over the place. Like I will wear you out. Like you, you, you want a thing. So let me, let, let's talk through like, what is it in your own life that maybe you are, you are yearning, you're yearning for, but I, you know, we have some things that are in, um, you know, that we might have, we might have in common with one another. Um, the other th- thing that I think is really interesting, um, kind of going along with the, do they need me? Or do they want, you know, want a friend is yeah. because I have oftentimes served in predominantly white spaces. I have to be very careful that my pastoral role does not become a mammy role. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, like, you know, we talk about the mammification of the black female body. Yeah. Um, and so I have to. So going back to this idea of can this person hold space for themselves and especially like can they interrogate um, their own racialized identities as a person who is white. I mean, if, if that's like my starting place now, you know, for friendships with folks in my, if, if they're still on a journey where that that's still difficult, it's actually not going to be great. We're not going to probably be able to, um, to delve into, 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 into sure. friendship with one another. Um, yeah. that's specifically with, with individuals who, um, yeah, who occupy occupy white bodies, and you know, growing up in the black church, kind of you talk about that that distance, well, maybe not distance, but this reverence. Um, there's something really beautiful about that that I love, and I also recognize that um, the world as it shifts, reverence can look like lots of different things, other than um, kind of relational distance, or we don't ever have access to you. Um, right. Yeah. And it's, it, it is, it's a healthy tension. I agree with you um, that there's something healthy about it and beautiful. But I mean, I, you know, some of my past experiences in a mega church where just by nature of the structure of it, the pastor's pretty, you know, distant from us, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, it just, I appreciate, I appreciate the experience you have of really trying to wrestle and navigate with that because there is still a place for that even yeah in a young church plant, yeah, yeah. but there's also a place to be a pastor among the people. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I, like I said, I've messed up. I think 
there have been some moments when um, dual relationships have gotten me in trouble. I mean, they yeah. really have, like they've made things way too murky or way too difficult. And um, I, I see a beauty in maybe being incredibly boundaried. Um, and also to, I think, uh, kind of being close there's a there's also like a beautiful messiness now if the messiness turns to harm that's not what i'm talking about but just right. like this idea of it's never quite as easy as you've got to go through two people to make an appointment with me that's it's it's just a, there's a lot more uh, complexity i think with the relationships yeah you you mentioned a little while ago a sabbatical yeah and i took a sabbatical in the midst of ministry. And there were things that I wish I would have known about my sabbatical before that I didn't figure out till after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, Literally, literally, I had lunch like the first week back with another pastor friend of mine and who had had a sabbatical. And I told him, yeah, halfway through, I felt like uh, I didn't want to go back. I wasn't ready to go back. And I felt like I should be having all these epiphanies, you know? Yes. Yep. No, you don't have any of that when you're on a sabbatical. Yeah. You're separated from it. You can't expect that. So yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. important learning. So I'll have to say, I'm wondering, I, I hope that in the midst of how difficult the last few years have been, mm. there are a lot of pastors preparing for sabbatical yes. right now. So yes. I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you learned on yours or what you would tell somebody who might be preparing for a sabbatical. Do it. Um, yeah, I mean, truly, yeah, do it. Yeah. Um, I, like I would not have made it over the past two years if I had not taken a sabbatical in 2019. Yeah. And I took yeah. it the summer of 2019. So five months back, uh, five months into uh, my coming back from sabbatical, and then we were in shelter in place. And I, and I tell you, I was set up to journey with a congregation through a wilderness wandering because I was so rested. I yeah. was so rested. It, 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 it helped me to come home to myself. Um, it helped me to remind myself that I was human. So I didn't like, you know, all this overperforming and overfunctioning during shelter in place. I was like, I'm not doing that. Like I really began to realize like good work can come out of slow work. It can come mm-hmm. out of like admitting, I don't know the next right, beautiful thing that we need to do. I'm going to fail fast. We'll innovate faster. We'll see. Um, but it was a, um, I think sabbatical was such a human experience and shelter in place in particular was such a human experience. I had a well to draw from. Um, So I would just say to any of my colleagues who are also practitioners, just do it. Um, We become so attuned to what other people need and want that we like using some Enneagram language, we become sleepy to what we want, like what makes us come alive. Um, my my uh, hashtag during my sabbatical was like, I was going to occupy my life. Like I needed to learn like, um, like what, what do I want? So my, my question during sabbatical was, um, you know, what do I want to do today? Mm-hmm. Oh God, it was yeah. glorious. It was glorious. Yeah. It was yeah, glorious. Yeah. It was glorious. Do it, do it. And, and I, and I would say, you know, if, if um, I did not produce anything. I was not trying to crank out a body of work. Right, right, right. That was not the, the only body of work was I would wear a bathing suit and eat takeout on my front porch. Like that's the, that's the hard work I was doing. Um, Is that, you know, just to maybe um, evaluate not having to uh, have any result, not even like, and now I'm so rested to work. That was not the, that was not the, 
then rest is not a gift. Then rest is a leveraging tool. And I, and yeah, so I would just say um, that it doesn't have to be a leveraging tool. It it can just be simply a, a means of remembering that God is God, that we are not, that God breathed into us the breath of life. We did not breathe into God the breath of life. Yeah. Yeah, my, my sabbatical is 12 weeks coming yeah. out of both an intense season in our church and an intense season just in our own personal life, remodeling mm. the house and all that. And I remember about six weeks in laying on the couch one afternoon, reading a book. The kids were all kind of, it was the middle of summer. So the kids were all just kind of doing their own thing somewhere in the house. My wife was out of town. I remember laying on the couch, just reading that book and thinking, there's nothing else I have to be doing right now. And it was the first time I'd felt that in I don't know how long. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's a beautiful feeling. It's such a beautiful feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I got blabbering about myself and I forgot. No, I love it. I want to ask you. Oh, yes. I know what it was. You've alluded to Enneagram a couple yeah. times. And so, you know, instead you're an Enneagram 9, I'm, I'm curious what you're aware of hmm. in as an Enneagram 9 in church leadership yep. for anybody who's aware of Enneagram out there, but particularly for Enneagram 9, the peacemaker, yep. if I remember yep. right. Yeah. Yes. We're the peacemaker. Yeah. What, what are, how do you find yourself as an Enneagram 9 situated in a pastoral role? What, what do you have to be aware of in yourself mm. and where does that become really, where does that Enneagram 9 become really helpful for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the helpful piece is that I can swim in nuance, like it's my full-time job. And I think, you know, whenever you're handling holy things or, uh, in a, in a communion of mystery and church is a communion of mystery, uh, to swim in nuance is so incredibly helpful, you know, because my church is a multi-church. So, you know, um, uh, multi-sexual identities, multi, um, uh, multi-abilities, uh, multi-racial, uh, yeah. multi, you know, you, you are all, I mean, I'm always thinking about the intersections of like, of, of particular things. And whereas it doesn't, uh, it might feel overwhelming and it is sometimes overwhelming. Uh, I, I, um, I can hold space. I can hold space for all the, like all the nuance, especially when when the multis start to like um, kind of bang up against each other, I think yeah. nines are just incredibly gifted at kind of understanding. Like I can see why that would be so difficult for this person to let go of. And I can see why this person is wanting to hold on so deeply. And I can see mm. how you, I think that there's something really beautiful in that yes. where we can get tripped up is that because I can hold nuance forever is recognizing like, but sometimes we need to like, so say the thing or do the thing, or make decisions, or um, come out of a place of discernment where they're not five bullet points. There, there's like one major, major bullet point. And early on in ministry, I used to work so hard for there to be a sense of consensus. And sometimes that's just not going to happen. And so I would, I would live in a lot with a lot of murkiness. A thing would happen. The thing wasn't up to my like, I didn't really like it because I did actually have an opinion from the get go. And then I would like very kindly, but also probably passive aggressively be like, you know, I think next time when we do this, we should do bop it up, bop it up, bop it up, bop. And people <laughs> finally said to me, Lisa, I wish you would just say that from the get go. Like, um, you know, instead of being like, let's, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can do a little of this and we can do a little of that. And we can do a little of that. And then I'm like, and that was janky. And oh God, how can I find a, you know, a, a diplomatic way of saying, we should do it differently. And um, so I have to, I have to really watch, I have to really watch for that. And also too, when I'm brokering conversations with, um, 
with people. I one time heard, I think it was like, it might've been Science Mike who said this, as a nine, I, I'm oftentimes like shaking my head, like, you know, up and down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to remind people just because I'm doing, shaking my head up and down doesn't mean I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I'm shaking my head up and down because I understand you. Huh. But I'm I, but, so I'm going to do this. You yeah. know, I'm going to shake my head up and down for you know while they're talking. Mm-mm, I'm a I'm a mm, I make a lot of noise. When I, when I, listen, <laughs> I give people feedback in real time. I'm West African. I can't help it. But then I might say, comma, you know, that's problematic. And sometimes people are like, oh, you're, but you, you were agreeing with me that whole time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need you to know that you know I I want you to know that I'm listening, but that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean I I agree with you. So yeah, yeah. Well, if I may, I want to ask one more question and we'll we'll work towards wrapping this up. Can you tell me about the, I've been gazing at this picture over your shoulder the whole time. Can you tell me about the significance of that? Yeah. Maybe maybe you can describe it for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a, it's a picture of a little, a little girl, a a black girl wearing like a white Mm -hmm. dress. um, And she's kind of holding her knees, um, probably about eight or nine years old. You know, I wish I could tell you that it's like uh, really something deep. People always ask me, is this like a depiction of you or one of your friends? <laughs> when I graduated from college, yeah. I was at home. I, I grew up in the near Charleston, South Carolina. I was um, downtown Charleston and it was a print. And at that time, it was like really grown up to get like a print um, framed, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I got this print frame of this little, you know, a beautiful black girl, which, you know, um, it was just, it was like my first like major college purchase and that I got, that I got framed. But it's interesting that, um, cause there are a lot of things about myself that I realized, Oh, in that moment, I didn't recognize my instinct, but my older self is, is watching what my younger self was doing. I think I needed to see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was coming out of college, I needed to like see images of myself. I went to an incredibly, um, I was only one of seven black women in my freshman class. I mean, it was, yeah. I was like, we weren't even enough to make the little rock nine. So I, I, I um, for the longest didn't actually have this, uh, this particular picture out or painting out. Um, but as of late, um, I have leaned very heavily on uh, black women and women of color in this pandemic. And I think I just, I like being surrounded now by images yeah. of uh, black women and girls of, um, women of color and, um, and girls of color. It's, I don't know, just a, they've been my manna uh, and what yeah. I consider to be a, a wilderness. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a beautiful picture and I assume oh, there's some you. significance when, when you set it up right behind you, yeah. you're probably yeah. on zoom a lot. Yeah. I assume yeah. there's gotta be some significance. Yeah. That, yeah. So. yeah. It's, well, it's, yeah. If, if anyone listening wants to learn more about, the table and you, where could they find you? Yeah. Um, so our website for the Southeast Raleigh table is under construction. So please don't judge us if you yes <laughs> before we launch our new website. It's pretty static. It's not a dynamic one. Or you can follow us on Instagram at, at SE underscore Raleigh table um, or on Facebook at Southeast Raleigh. And then uh, my um, Instagram is typically where people engage with me and it's at petite underscore pastor. All right. Well, yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. Well, what a gift to hear your perspective today. And thank from you. you. Thank you. Thank you.